Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussion of murder and torture that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the night of June 17, 1462, Vlad the Impaler and his ragtag army of 30,000 soldiers hid in the dense forest surrounding Wallachia. The Ottoman Sultan and his army, estimated to be at least two times the size of Vlad's, was camped just outside the city walls, prepared to attack and seize Vlad's kingdom once and for all. Vlad and his troops were outnumbered and outgunned. But Vlad refused to surrender. If he was going to be defeated, he intended to go out in a blaze of glory. Vlad recruited Turkish prisoners to penetrate the Ottoman camp and attack their own countrymen. If they refused, they were killed on the spot. Then he divided his men to attack the camp from two sides, taking them by surprise. In the invasion, Vlad's army killed nearly 15,000 Ottomans while losing only 5,000 troops of their own. Before his soldiers retreated, they collected the bodies of dead and dying Turkish soldiers and placed each one on a waiting stake. When the Sultan entered Wallachia, he would be greeted by the gruesome sight of thousands of his own men killed by the infamous Vlad the Impaler. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. In the previous four episodes, we've discussed two of the most feared men from the medieval period, Ivan the Terrible and Genghis Khan. Today, we're diving into the life of our final medieval dictator, Vlad the Impaler. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Many people believe that Bram Stoker's Count Dracula is based on Vlad the Impaler, who's also known as Vlad Dracula. But the real Vlad was 10,000 times more demented than the fictional vampire. Today he is remembered for his cruelty, specifically for impaling his enemies on large wooden spikes. But despite his violent reputation, Vlad the Impaler is actually one of the most beloved rulers in Romanian history. Though few, if any, of his accomplishments have shaped modern society, at the time of his rule he was one of the most brilliant and effective military leaders the world had ever seen. During the course of three violent and brutal reigns, Vlad gained the support and trust of his subjects, at least the ones he didn't kill, by keeping them safe from a constant stream of invasions. 
He also curtailed crime, poverty, and social inequality, gaining him a reputation as a man of the people. But his reputation had less to do with an egalitarian ethos than a hatred for the aristocracy and those he believed were a drain on society. His spectacularly effective policy was simple. He impaled anyone who crossed him. Vlad was born in Wallachia, a historic region of present-day Romania between 1428 and 1431. At the time, his father, Vlad Dracul, ruled the entire region. Vlad's father had recently been inducted into a brotherhood of knights known as the Order of the Dragon. After his induction, he was given the surname Dracul, which translated to dragon. His son then became known as Vlad Dracula, meaning Vlad, son of the dragon. The purpose of the Order of the Dragon was to defend the faith of Christianity and Christian territories, mostly from the marauding Ottomans, who at the time were the most powerful and fearsome empire on earth. Wallachia was located directly between Western Europe and the Eastern Empire, making it one of the most strategically valuable areas in Europe. As a result, it was constantly under attack, especially by the Ottomans. During the 15th century, nearly every country, territory, or kingdom from Britain to China was constantly at war. Part of the reason was that almost every ruler shared the same delusions of grandeur. Religious and ideological differences aside, many felt either compelled or entitled to expand their kingdoms and seize as much power as possible. This included Vlad Dracul, whose first reign began in 1436. The early years of his rule were relatively stable. During this time, Vlad the Impaler and his younger brother Radu were educated by the most elite scholars available in subjects ranging from mathematics to foreign language to combat. Even as a young boy, Vlad the Impaler demonstrated a keen and perceptive intellect, but his idyllic childhood soon came to a swift and abrupt end. In 1442, Vlad Dracul was ousted by Hungarian-affiliated rivals. The rivals then installed Dracul's oldest son, Mircea, as the new ruler of Wallachia. Seeking to form an alliance against the Hungarians, Dracul fled to the east and tried to enlist the support of his other enemy, the Ottoman Sultan Murad. The Sultan agreed to help but his support came at a very steep price. In exchange for Vlad Dracul's future loyalty, he demanded that Dracul leave his two sons with Murad at the Ottoman court in Gallipoli in modern-day Turkey. Essentially, as his prisoners, Vlad Dracul had to choose between his power and his family. He chose power. With his young sons as collateral, Dracul and the Sultan combined forces and invaded Wallachia to reclaim the throne. After a quick and decisive battle, Wallachia once again belonged to Vlad Dracul, but his son, Vlad the Impaler, still belonged to the Ottomans. Though they were technically captives in the Ottoman court, 
the experience more closely resembled an elite boarding school than a prison. Vlad and Radu's education proceeded much as it had in Wallachia. They learned from the finest teachers and were surrounded by other children of privilege, including the Sultan's son, Mehmed II. The main reason the Ottomans treated their so-called prisoners with respect and dignity was to cultivate alliances. Many of these prisoners, once freed, would go on to occupy positions of power, and the Ottomans counted on them remaining loyal. And although the Ottoman court might not have seemed much different than Wallachia, the brothers responded to the new environment in completely different ways. Radu thrived in his new environment, while Vlad the Impaler became moody and defiant. As a result, he was constantly scolded and disciplined. Not only was Vlad himself disciplined harshly, he bore witness to the torture and the execution of hundreds of the Sultan's enemies which almost certainly contributed to Vlad's fascination with violence and torture. Vlad also grew to resent his much more charming and well-liked brother. That resentment only increased as Radu blossomed into a remarkably good-looking and popular youth. So attractive that he came to be dubbed Radu the Handsome. Unfortunately, puberty wasn't as kind to Vlad the Impaler, who remained diminutive, gaunt, and ugly. Radu the Handsome was immensely popular with women in the Ottoman court, and his good looks and charm didn't go unnoticed by Sultan Murad's son, Mehmed II, who sexually harassed him on a regular basis. On one occasion, when Mehmed II was particularly drunk and sexually aggressive, Radu fended him off with his sword, injuring Mehmed in the process. Fearing for his life, Radu spent the entire night hiding in a tree. But this was the last occasion that Radu would reject Mehmed's advances. A short time later, Radu capitulated and began a voluntary sexual relationship with Mehmed. Even though his brother was probably the victim of Stockholm Syndrome to a degree, Vlad the Impaler viewed this as a betrayal. Every single one of his family members had abandoned him. His father had given him up for power. His brother had abandoned him to win favor with the Ottomans. Vlad, on the other hand, was largely ignored when he wasn't being disciplined or beaten for uncooperative behavior. As the beatings and psychological punishment continued, Vlad began to take a sick pleasure in his treatment and became fluent in the most effective methods. He was so intelligent and manipulative that he was also able to trick his detainers into educating him on techniques of physical and mental torture. And while Vlad was gifted in a multitude of subjects, this quickly became his true calling. Back in Wallachia, Vlad Dracul's influence was steadily declining. John Hunyadi, a brilliant military-oriented ruler, had risen to power in neighboring Hungary and started a crusade against the Ottomans. Hunyadi sought Vlad Dracul's assistance, but he refused to participate. Vlad Dracul didn't think Hunyadi stood even the slightest chance of winning. 
Also, he hoped that his refusal would keep him in good favor with the Ottomans and guarantee the release of his sons. Hunyadi's initial campaign against the Ottomans was successful, but he attempted a second misguided crusade that resulted in a humiliating defeat. After a short stint as a prisoner of war, a furious Hunyadi returned to Hungary with one goal, to get rid of Vlad Dracul. Despite his defeat at the hands of the Ottomans, Hunyadi was still immensely popular in Hungary and beyond. And as the year 1447 wound to a close, Hunyadi put his plan into action. He enlisted Vladislav II, the leader of a rival Wallachian clan, to organize a revolt against Vlad Dracul. Vladislav II proved remarkably adept in his new role as a violent pseudo-revolutionary, and he convinced many Wallachian aristocrats to embrace a potential coup. While a small group of aristocrats remained loyal to Vlad Dracul, it was hardly enough to stop Vladislav II and John Hunyadi from carrying out their plans. So the two men ironed out the details. Hunyadi would personally lead his troops into the city of Tergoviste and execute the coup. Vlad Dracul caught wind of the uprising and closed the city gates on what was supposed to be the night of Hunyadi's arrival. But there were far more revolutionaries within the city walls than Vlad anticipated. According to legend, as Vlad Dracul watched the revolutionaries close in, he turned to his chancellor and asked him to remit two precious relics to his son, Vlad the Impaler. The first was a sword given to him by the Holy Roman Emperor. The second was his official golden collar, engraved with the Order of the Dragon insignia. Moments later, he was captured and decapitated. Though Vlad Dracul's tomb has never been found, it's said that several of his loyal followers took his body and buried him in a small wooden chapel. A short time later, the official court historian in Budapest wrote that Vlad Dracul was a righteous and unconquerable man, the mightiest and bravest in battle, valiant beyond belief. Meanwhile, Vlad's chancellor rode all the way to the Ottoman court, a perilous five-day journey, and handed the items over to the teenage Vlad the Impaler. When he learned the news of his father's and brother's deaths, Vlad took an oath right then and there not to rest until he killed Vladislav II himself. When we return, we'll learn how Vlad put to use the education and training he received under the Ottomans in his quest to secure the Wallachian throne. Now, back to the story. In 1447, Vlad the Impaler learned of the deaths of his father and older brother at the hands of Vladislav II and John Hunyadi. But if one good thing came from his father's death, it was the fact that Vlad the Impaler was now a free man. His Ottoman captor, Sultan Murad, had long been impressed by Vlad's bravery and intellect. He considered Vlad the successor to his father's throne and promised he would be installed as soon as circumstances allowed it. What went without saying was that Murad expected Vlad's undying loyalty. 
in mid-October of 1448, John Hunyadi and Vladislav II, now firmly in control of Hungary and Wallachia respectively, launched another offensive campaign against the Ottomans. Originally, the operation was just meant to fortify defenses along the so-called Christian side of the Danube River, the river that separated Ottoman and European territory. But Hunyadi and his troops misguidedly crossed into Ottoman territory, where they were swiftly defeated and forced to retreat. During the retreat, a Serbian aristocrat managed to capture Hunyadi and briefly take him prisoner. With Hunyadi in captivity and Vladislav II and his weakened army licking their wounds in Serbia, Vlad the Impaler saw an opportunity to claim the Wallachian throne for himself. With the support of a small Ottoman cavalry, Vlad the Impaler rode into Wallachia and seized power virtually unopposed. But he was smart enough to see that his reign could only last as long as the Hungarians and Vladislav II were on the retreat. Furthermore, what remained of the ruling class in Wallachia wasn't eager to see Vlad the Impaler in power, particularly after he ignored a request to meet with them and acquiesce to their demands. By early December 1448, Vladislav II was on his way back to Wallachia, and when he arrived, he easily deposed Vlad the Impaler, whose first reign lasted barely over a month. With no other choice, Vlad retreated to the Ottoman court to bide his time and plan another coup. He spent a brief period at the Ottoman court before making his way to Moldavia, a principality not far from Wallachia. At the time, Moldavia was under the reign of Bogdan II. One of Bogdan II's sisters had been married to Vlad the Impaler's father, so technically he was Vlad the Impaler's uncle. As a result of this family connection, Vlad the Impaler was welcomed with open arms at the Moldavian court and chose to live with his cousin Stefan, Bogdan's son, in the capital city. Between 1449 and 1451, Vlad the Impaler and Stefan formed a tight bond and swore a loyalty oath to one another. In many ways, Stefan became the brother that Radu never was. But this relatively happy and peaceful period was cut short when Bogdan II was assassinated in a coup. In the chaos and confusion that followed, Vlad the Impaler and Stefan were forced to flee to Transylvania. At the time, Transylvania lay under the control of John Hunyadi. Only a few years before, Hunyadi had orchestrated the killing of Vlad the Impaler's father, installing Vladislav II on the throne in his place. But allegiances had shifted, and the partnership between Hunyadi and Vladislav II was beginning to fray. Now, Vlad the Impaler sought out Hunyadi's help in defeating their shared enemy and getting rid of Vladislav for good. The two formed an unlikely alliance. Hunyadi took Vlad the Impaler under his wing, offering him not only a military title, but a fancy palace and a distinguished role in the court. For the next few years, Vlad the Impaler learned and strategized alongside Hunyadi and was placed in charge of the defense of Transylvania. This was a tall order. Hunyadi and Vladislav II had declared embargoes against one another, and now Vladislav was mounting minor attacks on Hunyadi's territory. To make matters worse, 
Vladislav II had forged an alliance with the new Ottoman Sultan, Mehmed II, the same Mehmed II that Vlad had known since childhood. Mehmed II had only been in power a few short months, but he wasted no time in expanding his empire and asserting his dominance. His first move was to launch an elaborate offensive to reclaim the lands Hunyadi had seized from Vladislav II. No one besides Mehmed II himself expected much to come from his reign, but his reputation as a debaucherous, non-devout Muslim belied an intensely shrewd and militarily brilliant mind. He reveled in the fact that everyone underestimated him, and he used that perception to his advantage, not only proving his critics wrong, but accomplishing one of the most significant military conquests in human history, the Siege of Constantinople. The fall of Constantinople in 1453 proved to be one of the great turning points in human history. Not only was it a Muslim conquest of a major Christian territory, it expanded the Ottoman Empire to a position where it could potentially launch an offensive against Western Europe. To do so, they would have to pass through Wallachia and Hungary. And although Vlad the Impaler and Mehmed II had maintained a somewhat uneasy friendship since childhood, they both had an insatiable hunger for power that would lead them on a gruesome and violent collision course. At the time, though, Vlad was focused on defeating Vladislav II and regaining control of his homeland. Hunyadi, who was now on his deathbed, saw potential in Vlad and believed he was ready to assume the throne in Wallachia. In 1456, he sent Vlad, along with a small army, to depose their shared enemy. Only days after Vlad's departure, Hunyadi passed away. Now, Vlad the Impaler would attempt to avenge not only the deaths of his father and brother, but fulfill his promise to his recent mentor, John Hunyadi. Vlad and his men entered the city of Tergoviste with little to no opposition. At the time, the vast majority of Vladislav II's soldiers were engaged in a campaign in Belgrade. But Vlad the Impaler wasn't content with simply taking back the throne. He needed to honor the vow he made to himself almost a decade ago and avenge his father's murder. Vlad scoured the city until he located Vladislav II. Some accounts state that Vlad the Impaler beheaded Vladislav II with the sword bequeathed to him by his father, but it's impossible to know for certain. What we do know is that the persisting story is that Vlad the Impaler killed his rival with his own two hands, fulfilling his vow and earning the revenge he'd sought his entire adult life. Now in 1456, nearly eight years after his brief unsuccessful reign, Vlad the Impaler once again assumed the throne of Wallachia. And beheading a rival was merely a preview of the grim and violent future that lay ahead. When we return, we'll learn how Vlad the Impaler came to earn his moniker and the horrifying lengths he went to in order to intimidate and defeat his enemies. Now, back to the story.
After nearly a decade of battles, shifting allegiances, and betrayals, Vlad the Impaler, now around 25 years of age, once again occupied the throne of Wallachia. And this time, he intended to hold on to it any way he could. Vlad the Impaler was anointed ruler in 1456 in the Cathedral of Tergoviste. He adopted the long-winded title Prince Vlad, son of Vlad the Great, sovereign and ruler of Ungro Wallachia and the duchies of the Amayas and Fagarash. Though his title may have been wildly impractical, his first move as ruler was anything but. With the help of his Hungarian allies, he set out to fortify the area surrounding Wallachia to protect it from the strong and confident Ottoman forces. He also initiated official correspondence with every nearby ruler he believed could serve as a potential ally. In a letter to the mayor of a nearby principality, Vlad the Impaler wrote a message that would hint at his violent, autocratic ideology. He wrote, Pray think that when a man or a prince is powerful and strong at home, then he will be able to do as he wills. But when he is without power, another one more powerful than he will overwhelm him and do as he wishes. For much of his life, Vlad had studied the finer points of politics under foreign rulers, so he understood the nuances of effective leadership. He had also witnessed the reign of the most successful ruler of his time, Sultan Murad, up close and personal. It's impossible to say how and why Vlad became so bloodthirsty. He saw firsthand the powerful effects of torture, which was exceedingly common during this period. Perhaps he was inspired by what he witnessed, and his psyche was warped by the betrayal of everyone close to him. Either way, he would use torture and violence to greater effect than anyone who preceded him. Vlad the Impaler's ascension to the throne hadn't gone unnoticed by Sultan Mehmed II, who was fully aware of Vlad's brilliance and the danger he posed. And since Vlad had never officially renounced his allegiance to the Ottomans, Mehmed II figured the two of them could form at least a tenuous alliance. But Mehmed II had a larger and more powerful army than Vlad did, and Vlad knew it. To emphasize this fact, Mehmed II sent a delegation to Wallachia. They demanded a yearly financial tribute to the Sultan, as well as the right for his army to pass through Wallachia for potential raids into Transylvania. This was done with the understanding that Mehmed would come to Vlad the Impaler's assistance if the situation demanded. The alliance went both ways, but still, it meant that Wallachia was technically under the control of the Ottomans. And that meant that if Vlad intended to engage in any international campaigns, he would need the Sultan's permission. Vlad agreed to the terms because he knew it would be politically expedient, but he refused to travel to Constantinople, the new capital of the Ottoman Empire, to pay homage to the Sultan in person which Mehmed perceived as a grave insult. With the formalities out of the way, Vlad got to work shaping Wallachia in his image, one in which he and he alone would maintain absolute power.
During this time period, Europe was by and large a feudal society, in which power lay in the hands of the upper class and the peasants were kept in a state of impoverished servitude. Wallachia was no exception. The power was largely divided among boyars, or nobles. There was no defined power structure among the boyars, which led to incessant conflict and a totally useless system of bureaucracy. The boyars had also largely supported Vladislav II in his coup during Vlad the Impaler's first reign, so there was some bad blood already. Vlad resented the boyars for what he viewed as their indifferent, ineffectual approach to dealing with enemies, especially the Ottomans. In an oddly egalitarian streak, he also disapproved of how the boyars manipulated and exploited the poor peasants. He realized that by eradicating this bloated system of nobility, he could create a central, sovereign administration that would work a lot more efficiently and effectively. His desire to reform the political establishment had more to do with purging his enemies than fine-tuning the machine. The vast majority of boyars still bore allegiance to Vladislav II, Vlad's vanquished nemesis. As long as they were alive, they were a threat. It's unknown exactly when Vlad began his trademark campaign of impalement, but it began en masse around 1457. In a truly brilliant and sadistic move, he invited some 200 boyars, prominent citizens, and their wives to the Wallachian court for an Easter celebration. As his guests were finishing their elaborate meal in the banquet hall, Vlad's men entered and seized each and every one of them. The old and infirm were immediately taken beyond the city walls and impaled on large stakes. The young and able-bodied were chained together and marched 50 miles until they reached the source of a large river. When they arrived, they were shocked to find brick ovens and kilns fired up and ready for use. They were put to work building and hauling bricks to rebuild what once had been a majestic castle. Not only did this initiate Vlad the Impaler's reputation for cruel and unusual punishment, it also resulted in an awesome, heavily fortified palace for Vlad. In addition to enslaving the boyars, he also seized their land and redistributed it to the peasants they had subjugated for centuries. He also gave these now-landed peasants governmental and social roles. In doing so, he was not only earning their allegiance, but creating a loyal civilian army to do his bidding, which mainly consisted of killing people who refused to do the aforementioned bidding. Vlad the Impaler also began assembling a large official Wallachian military. Unlike previous conflicts, where large independent troops of soldiers from neighboring principalities aligned for a specific mission, Vlad consolidated the local forces into one unit. In doing so, he was not only reinforcing his own power as a military commander, he was streamlining what had been a needlessly complicated military system. As his army grew more effective, his behavior on the throne grew more mercurial and erratic, especially his behavior toward visitors, even those who came to pledge their loyalty.
Midway through his reign, a contingent of Italian ambassadors came to visit him at his court. They honored a specific tradition by bowing and removing their hats. However, underneath their hats, they were wearing tiny skullcaps, which to Vlad's horror and bewilderment, they refused to remove. When Vlad asked why they hadn't removed the skullcaps, the ambassadors replied, this is our custom. We are not obligated to take our skullcaps off under any circumstances, even in an audience with the Sultan or Holy Roman Emperor. Vlad told the ambassadors, in all fairness, I want to strengthen and recognize your customs. The ambassadors nodded and bowed in approval. At which point, Vlad picked up several large iron nails and placed one atop the head of each ambassador. Then he sat back and watched as his attendants nailed the skullcaps to the ambassadors' heads. When he wasn't hammering nails into people's heads, he tortured and killed his enemies by impaling them on large wooden stakes. To maximize the pain, the tip of the stake would remain as dull as possible. Once the stake was forced through the victim's body, it was raised vertically and driven into the ground. Then the weight of the victim's own body would drag them further down the stake, a process that often took several days to result in death. Instead of disposing or burying the impaled bodies, Vlad reportedly arranged them strategically around his castle and the Principality of Wallachia. And while impalement was certainly his torture method of choice, it was also rumored that he would boil and roast his victims alive, cut off body parts, skin victims alive, and feed them to wild animals. Though the history has been passed down through oral tradition, and it's important to note that no one can know for sure the extent of his cruelty, Vlad's torture methods were reportedly as disparate and varied as his sense of justice. He harbored illogical and wildly conflicting beliefs about what constituted criminal behavior. For instance, he bore a particularly strong and inexplicable hatred for what he considered unchaste women. Women who had sex before marriage and those unfaithful to their living or deceased husbands were impaled on a red-hot stake. Or, one story goes, they had their breasts cut off, which were then force-fed to the husbands they'd been unfaithful to. He also apparently detested thieves and beggars, whom he felt were leeching off the productive members of society. In a grand effort to discourage this behavior, he and his men rounded up every thief and beggar they could find in Wallachia and invited them to a fabulous feast at the palace. It's said that once his guests had eaten, the doors of the dining hall were locked shut and the entire room was set on fire, burning everyone inside to death. Vlad's methods were both terrifying and effective, and it seemed that he'd achieved everything he'd wanted. He had vanquished his father's killer and finally upheld his oath of revenge. Aside from impaling people on giant stakes and consuming their vital organs, Vlad was, by all accounts, calm and happy. 
For several years, things in Wallachia ran surprisingly smoothly. Unfortunately, it wouldn't last. In 1460, as Mehmed II expanded his empire deeper into Europe, Pope Pius II was growing worried. Mehmed's siege of Constantinople was still fresh in the collective memory. Pius saw the potential of another siege occurring on a much larger scale. He decided to take preemptive action to protect Christian Europe against the Muslim Ottomans, and he proposed a dramatic idea to do it. He suggested that all the Christian powers in Europe, including Wallachia, unite for another crusade against the Ottomans. It was an incredibly risky maneuver. If it failed, the Ottomans could potentially gain control of the entire continent. But if it succeeded, Vlad could expand his empire beyond his wildest dreams. To him, the choice was clear. He was going into battle against the Ottomans. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore how the crusade changed the trajectory of Vlad's life and the future of his empire. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Aaron Larson, and Joel Stein. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs> <laughs>